Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's international system is like a ship adrift during a pandemic. With the captain lost to the virus and the most capable and conscientious members of the crew self-isolating in their cabins, The deck is now teeming with contagious megalomaniacs. Rather than collaborate, each thinks they know how to steer the ship better than the admirals. Plato envisioned such a scenario in the Republic. He warned that true democracy would lead to populism. Contempt for experts would ensue, resulting in short-sighted and reversal-prone approaches to policy formation. He also warned that once this point was reached, it would be nearly impossible to put the genie back in the bottle. Precisely at the time when we need the most competent people in charge to navigate our world through the storms swirling around us, we seem to be ending up with more and more leaders who actively thrive on chaos. We have entered an era of global enduring disorder, and this is the podcast which explains why. I'm Jason Pack, author of Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. And let me tell you, I've witnessed some disorder in my day. I had a Fulbright scholarship in Syria during the early 2000s. You know, it was a a good run. I only managed to get kidnapped twice. (laughs) And over the last two decades, I've seen firsthand how decisions made in Moscow, London, and Washington have deliberately fostered what I term the Global Enduring Disorder. This is my concept that we're living through a unique era of self-perpetuating disorder. Yeah, quite right. And this is Alex Hall-Hall, my illustrious co-host on this journey. Hi, Jason. Alex has steered a fair few vessels in her day, for example, as British ambassador to Georgia, all the way until the day when she finally jumped ship, unwilling to peddle Boris Johnson's Brexit lies. It's great to be here. And your metaphor of the ship is a perfect one because I have to say, I have been feeling increasingly seasick about where the world is headed. And so this is the Disorder Podcast, where we examine our new historic era, one characterized by deliberate disorder and a lack of coherent international coordination. Here, we'll look at issues like climate change, tax havens, or unregulated cyberspace. Speaking to people at the forefront of Western policymaking to figure out, why are the major world powers no longer working effectively to solve global problems? How did we get to here? And what can we do to foster order?
Well, here we are, Alex. It's the first episode of Disorder. Shall the podcast long endure and the global mess we find ourselves in quickly dissipate? Hear, hear to that. Although, of course, if we succeed, we're out of a job. <laughs> and so, over the next few weeks, we're going to unpack this era of global disorder. But before we get to that point, we're going to give you a little chance to get to know a little bit more about us, why we care about this issue, and how we ended up hosting this podcast. This is our very first episode, so we're warming up ourselves and hopefully warming you up too. Alex, when it came to someone who was going to have understood and lived the disorder and be able to share its lessons, Ow. I knew we would resonate. Ow, I know where this question is going. What are you going to ask? You were in the belly of the beast. You were in the Pentagon when the Iraq war was being planned. You were selling and trying to figure out how to present a more reasonable version of Brexit to an, an American diplomatic and media audience. I mean, as soon as I got to know the rooms that you had been in, I knew we needed to do this together. Yes, that is true. I have seen the disorder from the inside. And the reference you made there, for those who may not know this, is I did spend three months inside the Pentagon as a British liaison to the Americans in the three months leading up to the start of the Iraq war and the very first few weeks of that Iraq war. And I used to try and convey back to people in London, look, they really don't have much of a plan for the post-war phase. And my reports just didn't land anywhere. People didn't want to believe it. That's they so interesting it. because I feel like people who haven't experienced policymaking, and this was me when I was a graduate student, are like, no, but there's like a secret plan and it was like a conspiracy and they wanted to get the oil or they wanted to whatever. And then when you live it and you do it and you brief the British ambassador to Libya and you realize, you know, he's a good and well-intentioned guy, but he doesn't have the levers for this or it's worse in the American case. It's like, they're dealing with some bureaucratic things and they have to deal with the conflict to stabilization bureau, but the energy bureau has this and this like, there can't be any rationale because the bureaucratic pressures are such. When I've lived that, I exactly want someone to share not just a cynicism, but a sense of what the potentials are. And I think there are so many well-intentioned diplomats out there who- Thank you. Have put in the travels- they have the social skills, but in the Anglo-American tradition, people are so afraid of your going native. They rotate you every two or five years and in these hardship posts every year. And that's exactly where you need expertise. You need someone who's a lifelong Iraq expert, but they rotate them every year. So I'm going to set out my stall by saying I am not a believer in conspiracies. I'm generally a believer in the cock-up theory. Often people say there is a secret cabal, it's a CIA plot, or <laughs> the British were colluding with the Americans to do something. And I actually sometimes, I wish we had that power and that leverage. Of course, anyone who's actually been to Langley and actually given any of these briefings, I showed them my militia map at DIA. And DIA? The Defense Intelligence Agency, arguably more important than the CIA when it comes to a lot of these topics. And they're like, oh, we don't know all the names of the militia leaders. And I was like, oh, God, really? What about if I have a commercial product, which is a mapping of not only pieces of infrastructure, but which Libyan militias sit on them? And point blank, I was told this is way above our heads. We don't need to consume a piece of information like this. So the idea that 
the American intelligence community is pulling the string by these Libyan militias is so far-fetched from an operational capability standpoint. So yes, the cock-up theory. Uh, I love it. You heard it here first. Alex Hall Hall's cock-up theory. I'm not as critical as you are about American diplomats and American intelligence experts. As it happened, I used to have a job where I used to regularly interact with the CIA. And of course, I've met many American diplomats over my career, and I've always found them to be supremely professional. I think the difference I would say about American diplomats is sometimes they are so expert that they are almost too niche expert. Mm. We and can they agree to disagree. Okay, all right. And they don't see the wood for the trees. So the British tended to be more about the big picture. We actually didn't have the resources or depth mm. to know some of the detail on the ground. In my experience, the Americans were almost too immersed in their specialist area mm. and sometimes could have done with stepping back a little bit. Mm. But you disagree. Well, we can start with our first agreeable disagreement of okay. the disorder pod because Many of my colleagues from graduate school are now in the State Department. Okay. And I don't think they find it a place where an expert thrives. The people rotate in and out of Baghdad, and the ones who go to Libya had been in Thailand beforehand. Languages are not nearly as valued as they are even in the FCDO. Uh-huh. But what American diplomats have that is going to mean that we inhabit the same planet is there is a degree of seriousness Definitely. I'm sorry I can't talk with you because this isn't a prearranged meeting. And and it's very important that we are just in listening mode. Like the number of meetings that I've had with like the new Libya desk officer person where they ask questions and take notes assiduously, they never say anything about what they're doing or what their policies are. I prefer my regular bog standard FCDO diplomat because you go and you have a pint. There is a casual... I wouldn't even call it the old school amateurish sense, but there is a human element. Uh Whereas in the US system, it's so difficult to get the security clearance. And there are so many bureaucratic rules about, I can only meet with these kind of people, but we can go have a coffee here, but I shouldn't talk about these things. And then they're always accompanied. So when I go and meet with one, there's also the underlings of that one. And then of course they can't be casual because they're in the room with their same underlings. And have you heard of the Borg from Star Trek? Oh, cultural reference. Oh, wow. I I think people are going to know about the Borg. The Borg act as a personless unit, and it can defeat humanity because they're all coordinated, but they don't understand nuance because they have no feelings or emotions. And I feel like that the State Department training process whips out of you your ability to do creative thinking and one-on-one stuff because you don't want to get out in front of what Washington is saying. And then when you're in that meeting, if it's just me and Jeff sitting down over a pint in Westminster, he says what he thinks is absolutely fucked up about the negotiations. And the American one doesn't because he's there with all his underlings and he's been pinned in. And also important to note that Brits who've traveled to places like Syria and Russia get their clearances and become diplomats. And Americans like myself who lived in Syria and worked in Libya, never get their clearances. American diplomats are experts within the beast. And a lot of British diplomats were experts having traveled and been journalists and whatever, and then they join. So I think you and I may be describing two sides of the same coin about American diplomats. I see them as too 
detailed and maybe not seeing the big picture. But I think that's maybe just a flip side of sort of working to a more conservative formula. But this is actually one of the themes we're going to come through quite a lot through the podcast. The different why our institutions roles. don't work and why they're not able to process the information and the challenges. And, and also why we don't always work so well together because we have different ways of working. The Brits, the Americans and the French, we have different ways of working and, and approaching and, issues. And it, it's such an irony because probably given this Ukraine war, the West is more on the same page in the democratic world in general than it has been at any time in the last 15 years. And yet there's very little spillover to tackling things like climate change and tax havens. I don't really see us using this unity and that has to do with these institutional constraints. And we have not figured out a way how to coordinate a sane center. And one of the things I am gonna be calling for and I've tried to have as a core value of my career is a radical center. And I see myself with the American political spectrum entirely hollowed out. I see myself as a radical centrist. And the idea of ordering the disorder is actually radical. And a lot of that coordination, which we really need to get to these win-win situations, it hasn't happened for one reason or another. Well, to be fair, I don't think it's necessarily because the quality of individuals on the world stage have got so much worse. Although they have. Okay. Well, the quality <laughs> of leaders has. So I would say we're, our quality of leadership isn't as good as it used to be. But I would argue it's also because there are more prevailing winds against us. That's something we're also going to look at in future episodes. You have rogue actors you have disinformation, you have, I mean, you said we're not all ruled by billionaires, but certainly in the UK, when 80 plus percent of the British media landscape is controlled by non-domiciled billionaires who have their own political agendas, those all have an impact. And we talk about illicit financial flows, how money coming into our political system distorts things. You have how populism has grown and is fueled by mass migration, and mass migration itself is fueled by increasing climate change and conflict, and conflicts are getting harder to resolve because taking us back to square one, it's harder for the international community to work effectively together. So all these things are interlinked. It's not necessarily that British diplomats or American diplomats aren't as smart as they used to be, but it's a much messier world we are trying to operate in. That's it, Alex. You've ordered the disorder for us. Couldn't even disagree agreeably. Thank you. Well, a little bit of disagreement, as I always tell my husband, is what makes for an interesting marriage. And that's what we're going to have on this podcast, a very interesting marriage. Jason, when was the world actually last in good order, in your view? A stable and ordered world is no doubt an aberration. Yeah. Most of human history yeah. has been war rather than peace. And economic growth and international coordination, again, probably an aberration. From roughly 1815 to 10 or 20 years ago, you had an Anglo-American hegemon controlling commerce 
and the fundamental treaty infrastructure of how states dealt with each other. There were vast unfairnesses in that period, and and we're not debating that on this show. This is not a question of revising imperial history, but rather to look at how we went from a more ordered world to a less ordered one. Okay, so what you're saying is that for most of the last 200 years, we had a kind of overall ordering power. It wasn't that these rogue actors didn't exist, but there was an ordering power like the British or the Americans who were providing a framework. Would you say the end of the Second World War and the creation of the new institutions like the UN and NATO were a pivotal part of that? Why is that beginning to fray now? The American-led world order after World War II was the attempt to vest the American victory into institutions. A huge mistake that we're going to be returning to again and again in this podcast was that the victory against the Soviet Union at the end of the Cold War was not vested into new institutions. And we're kind of stuck on a world in which the salient issues of today are being dealt with by the institutions of yesterday. We just don't have enforcement mechanisms to create the right incentive structures for people to want to play ball in this ordered world. So one question that I think we're going to explore now is why haven't these new post-Cold War institutions been created? Why haven't we been able to adapt our model? Yeah, that's the $64 trillion question, Alex. And it's one that we've been unpacking with various scholars and diplomats, journalists and policymakers. One such person is Timothy Garden Ash, a historian who experienced the disintegration of the ordering institutions firsthand. He told us exactly what he thought happened. So here's the thing. The end of the Cold War was unlike the end of most other major wars in that most of the post-war, i.e. post-1945, Western-built institutions survived and were simply extended. And so what we did was the enlargement of the West plus a very serious attempt, and I was part of this attempt, to build an acceptable relationship for Russia. So let me remind you that G7 became the G8. And there was a lot of Western economic help from the modernization of Russia. And similarly with China. Let me remind you that China was brought into the WTO. I once saw in Beijing the exhibition of the history of the world in a hundred objects, a famous exhibition that started at the British Museum. The Chinese added item 101. You'll never guess what it was. It was the rather cheap-looking pen with which a senior Chinese official signed China into the WTO. It was that important to China. So it's not the case that we made no attempt and we just dictated the terms. There were very serious attempts, but with time, both Russia and China became profoundly dissatisfied with that new world order, which seemed to them to be a Western declaration of victory, and where the United States seemed to be able to do whatever it liked. Unfortunately, there were many people in Washington at that time who thought that was exactly what the new world order meant. Even if 
there was an attempt to bring Russia and China into the fold. What was missed when those conversations and decisions were being had? I think it's really important to say that, in my view, the big mistakes were made in the early 2000s more than in the early 1990s. In the 1990s, I remember vividly, we had no idea if any of this was going to work. And we were quite cautious and feeling our way. And the belief that the United States was a hyperpower, that comes in the early 2000s. And that, in my view, is when the big mistakes are made. In a sense, the mistake we gradually came to make was to regard freedom as a process rather than a struggle. There was an inclination to believe that as these countries got richer and more integrated with the West, so they would necessarily become democratic. It was not wrong to try, and there were a lot of people in both Russia and China who wanted that to happen. In my view, the mistake was not to adjust our policy when it became clear that wasn't actually happening. We have backdoored our way into the enduring disorder out of a combination of optimism, naivete, and ostrich head-in-the-sand-ism that you've described. So as I understand it, we and hopefully most of our listeners believe in this rules-based liberal world order. There is momentum being built here, and it's going to take a big struggle to create the institutions and political will to address that. Would you see things similarly? So the fact is that so much of the story we're discussing derives from the fact that for close to 200 years, you had as the increasingly global hegemonic power, first Britain, the United Kingdom, and then the United States. And now we see a much weakened, internally divided United States and very much stronger non-Western powers. So that I think the way in which we got into this disorder has two time frames. One time frame is post-Cold War, is what went wrong after the end of the Cold War. The other is a much longer time frame, a time frame of centuries, in which for the first time, since at least the end of the 18th century, the agenda of world politics is being set in really significant ways by major non-Western powers like China and India, and of course Russia is a borderline Western non-Western power. So I think there are those two things which reinforce each other, and actually the adjustment to such a world uh, is going to be an extremely difficult one, and one in which the world of the early 20th century may look much more like, namely, a world of competing, mutually antagonistic great powers. In 2005, you wrote of a conflict in the UK and a general crisis of the West, how do you see this conflict now? Can you see a way to bring the Western alliance together to order the world? And is this just about the West kind of regaining its mojo? What is it going to take? Funnily enough, one might argue that our best ally has been Vladimir Putin, because he's really pulled the West together again and given us a sense of mission of purpose, our mojo back. And if he doesn't do it, then maybe Xi Jinping's China will. The trouble is that starting with the United States, above all, but also some European societies, are so divided. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Thinking about the renewal of our own societies, our own democracies, our own freedoms, 
is a really important part of this conversation. If the future of the West is to go beyond the West, then we have to be careful not to talk about the West too much in ways that feel exclusionary, and they can quite easily. And so I myself would rather talk about the constituent elements. I would rather talk about freedom and about justice and about democracy, about the core values of the West, than necessarily the geopolitical term with all its baggage. Coming up, why do we always seem to pick the wrong leaders? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click gift mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. As Timothy alludes to, one of the biggest problems is that our leaders have been too slow to realize when their approach wasn't working and that countries like China and Russia weren't going to progress neatly along the path we'd envisaged for them. But even worse than that, that they would push back and challenge our own model. In a forthcoming episode, we'll talk in more detail about how we have a new breed of leaders emerging, who are not just incapable of tackling these kind of problems effectively, but actively seem to thrive on chaos and division, may even deliberately make them worse. We're calling them neo-populists. But for now, Jason, why do you think our current set of leaders are falling short? This is an issue that my old friend, originally a Madagascar and rigged elections expert, now a Twitter impresario and commentator on American and British politics and fellow American refugee from Trump in the UK, Brian Kloss, has been wrestling with for over a decade. He's covered topics like election rigging and the evolutionary and biological appeal that authoritarians possess in his book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us. We began by discussing a concept of his called authoritarian learning, 
where autocrats learn from one another and repeat successful campaigns. You start to see autocratic tactics crop up in different places simply because they worked. And so what you end up having, you know, Bolsonaro's storming of the government buildings in Brazil almost two years exactly after the storming of the Capitol on January 6th, I think it's hard to believe that all these things are just coincidences. They're not. I think that this is a big problem because it would have been harder for this to happen in the sort of 1930s. It simply would not have been the case that Mussolini comes up with a tactic and then a, a regime in Southeast Asia adopts it two weeks later. Whereas now it can happen very, very quickly. And it's in an environment where they're all facing sort of a similar disordered international environment, which they can exploit. Political movements have always been imitative, right? What's different is A, the speed because of the internet. The global environment that each country is facing is more similar because regional environments used to matter more. All of it is just happening faster, right? Yeah, let, let me give you one of my favorite examples of this that I think illustrates many of your concepts of disorder that I've seen in my own work, which is in Thailand. What's really interesting is that if you go to the American embassy in Thailand, it is the, I believe, the largest by area, or the second largest now after Iraq, yeah. uh, in the world. And the reason for that is because it was a staunch U.S. ally in the Vietnam War. It's been a long-term U.S. ally firmly in the American camp. And since Vietnam, what you've seen is a steadily rising China, particularly since the 1990s and 2000s. So in 2014, there's a coup in Thailand. What does the U.S. do? Well, normally the U.S. wants to condemn military governments. But the problem is China's just waiting there for the condemnation for them to turn and say, well, you know what? If the U.S. doesn't want to be our friend anymore, Beijing is very happy to swoop in. And so there's this disordered environment that the Thai government is exploiting, and it's using it to hedge by playing the Chinese and the Americans off each other. So the U.S. issues this sort of tepid statement. American companies are still operating in Thailand. The Chinese government is selling submarines and building trains at the same time that the U.S. government is holding military exercises with the Thai military. It's just sort of a bizarre juxtaposition of all these things. And it brings together how difficult it is for the weakened state capacity of a less powerful West to actually impose its will when there actually is a sort of defection option. And so you have all these different power centers, and they're all sort of trying to figure out what to do. And then what does the Thai government do? Well, it comes up with clever ways to change its constitution so that its elections don't actually mean that the junta is going to lose. And other countries mimic that. Your book, Corruptible, gets at how the best designed institutions and most well-intentioned groups in the Western world can be corrupted to choose disordering macho neo-populist leaders by hacking certain evolutionary predispositions. Is our era of enduring disorder rooted in ways that technology and the new media space has been used to unleash certain innate biological prejudices for strongmen, for example, that robust institutions and the old curated elite media environment have previously kept in check? The basic concept is this, that humans have had an evolutionary pressure on them to survive. And for countless generations, like 99% of the generations of humanity, it has been very, very helpful, especially in times of crisis, to have a leader who is a physically strong man. Now, that no longer applies. We don't need a president who can do lots of push-ups or throw a spear or you know beat their chest and so on. But what you find in some of the psychology experimental literature that I found very persuasive was they did lots of experiments and they also did computer manipulations of images 
where they asked people effectively, you know, who do you want to be in charge? And they found a sort of muted response to anything like physical strength, et cetera, size, height, all these sorts of things. But when they said like, okay, now imagine that there is a war or there's a pandemic or there's a famine or an economic crisis. Now we're going to show you a series of images. And very often the effect was amplified to a huge degree for physically strong men. And the reason I wrote about this, I mean, it's incredibly depressing how stupid this bias is, right? I mean, it, it, it absolutely does not matter whether somebody, as I say, could do push-ups. And in almost every other field, you imagine you go to the doctor's office and like the male doctor takes his shirt off and does some push-ups to show you how good he is at medicine. You would think, you know, I have to call the medical licensing board and get this guy fired. But in politics, this sort of masculine display is like a routine part of our political system. I mean, you have... They're exploited, I think, by agents of disorder to make themselves appear more powerful. And it's important, I think, not to condescend to people for whom this dynamic is playing out within them in their electoral choices. They're not stupid. It's that we all want decisive leaders. And therefore, I blame our institutions and our media, which are less robust and less curated, and hence don't redirect them. How do you see the question of the institutional and media changes that have taken us from an Eisenhower and JFK style of quote unquote manly leadership to the Trump Bolsonaro type. Yeah, I think they're definitely linked because when you think about how somebody can break out in modern politics, I'm talking now particularly in backsliding democracies, fragile democracies like the United States and so on. You think in the past, if you wanted to become famous in the Republican Party, what you sort of had to do was put your time in and hope that the majority leader is going to sort of give you a primetime slot on CBS News to be the face of the party. So you put in your decades of service, you're loyal to the party, you always abide by the rules, and then maybe you'll get your big break on one of the three big broadcast networks. Or you get a speech at the convention, which the party decides. Now, the thing is, when you think about people, some of the most famous people in the modern Republican Party, I mean, Donald Trump had put in no time as an elected official. He'd never been elected before he ran for president. But also like the sort of firebrands that are household names in the United States, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert and Matt Goetz. These are junior members of Congress. They're in their second term or they've just been recently elected. And you still have a situation where they're completely famous and they can get rich off of this too. Why are they completely famous? Because they have figured out that in a fragmented media space, with particularly social media, that extremism makes you powerful and rich. And it makes you powerful and rich because there is an audience nationally for someone who's willing to sort of push the limits of what is normal in conventional politics. This embeds a reward system structurally for people who are willing to be performatively crackpots, agents of chaos, who don't want to solve problems. They want to sow problems, because if you create problems and then you are seen as the one who's sticking it to the elite, the opposition, the institutions, you're rewarded with clicks and eyeballs and listens and so on. And all of these people are existing in a world where I call them political influencers. They're not politicians. They're not actually solving problems. They're influencers. And the reward is not legislation. The reward is attention. And people who are very, very dangerous for order thrive on attention-seeking chaos. You write about the dark triad traits in individuals, and this is Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. Is it the political influencer economy that you mention 
which really makes the dark triad beneficial. Because before, you needed to pretend a little bit, you know, I don't have the dark triad that much. So it's as if the policing of these dark triad traits or the structurally keeping them in order got taken away. Yeah, I mean, so the dark triad is these three traits, Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. And it, when you just think about it, it makes complete sense that these people are going to be overrepresented in politics, right? The, the Machiavellian is the strategic thinker who strategizes and schemes to get power. The narcissist chases the spotlight, and the psychopath is someone who craves and covets power and control, but also doesn't care about hurting people. So these are things that are particularly uh, rewarded in political office-seeking. When you think about why this is, in the modern world, we have designed systems that I think make these people more likely to become powerful. So there's basically three levels to getting power, right? The first level is seeking power, you actually try. The second level is getting power, you actually are successful. And the third level is staying in power. And you have to have all three of these. People with the dark triad are very good at all three levels, and they actually put themselves forward all the time because they're obsessed with the idea of power. Whereas most normal public servants are very much repelled by the idea of being in politics. So this is a structural problem. But the psychopath says power is worth it. You have a situation where the system gets more broken because there's psychopaths in charge, and therefore they then replicate themselves because more psychopaths want to do exactly the same thing. How do we draw out and incentivize people who have compassion, emotional intelligence, public service ethic to get into this field when it is such a cesspool? Yeah, I think there's sort of two things that I'll point to. The first is, and this is something that really surprised and depressed me when I was doing research on political systems and, and who ends up being a candidate and so on, is we just wait for people to say, I should be in charge. And this creates what I call self-selection bias, where someone who thinks they're sort of God's gift to man is going to end up becoming more likely to get power because they put themselves forward. So political parties need to spend a lot more money on recruitment. They need to find people who have public service oriented credentials and also a track record of serving with integrity and seek them out much more. But I think we need to also recognize that a lot of very good but not strategic people would make excellent leaders. You know, I met someone when I was a grad student who was unwilling to be photographed at any party because it was so clear that the ambition was to enter politics that a photo of them holding a beer bottle could be disqualifying. I mean, we don't want that kind of person in politics. We want someone who's actually had life experience and lived and so on. So I think we need to sort of make allowances at the local level that imperfect but well-intentioned people are much better than people who have sort of <laughs> ensured that they've you know, cleaned out all the skeletons in their closet so that they can enter public life. Most of our institutions are on autopilot. We haven't thought proactively about how to design better systems to get better leaders, and we need to start doing that. I have to say that interview with Brian really resonated with me on so many levels. And the point he made about the sort of veneer of democracy and our reluctance to call them out for what they were is something that really leapt out for me about what he said, because I saw it. I was posted both in Georgia and in India. And in India, we have an autocratic leaning leader in Modi, but we're all a bit afraid 
to call him out because we worry about pushing India closer back again to Russia. And then in Georgia, we absolutely have seen it time and time again. While Ukraine is really stepping up and fighting for its democracy, right at this very moment, I would say Georgia is headed in the opposite direction. It's become more oppressive. It's clamping down on civil society. It is hedging its bets between Russia and the West. And Alex, a lot of that is because of what Brian has told us, the dark triad traits. The leaders of Russia and China are narcissistic megalomaniacs. and Not just in Russia. Not just in Russia, unfortunately. For sure. For sure. Globally, I mean, this is a feature of the enduring disorder. How people get to power and who chooses to seek power, it seems like it is more likely to be possessors of these dark triad traits. And normal people don't want to enter politics. I mean, there's a huge discussion here in the UK about how, given how low MP salaries are, given how you're going to be pilloried on Twitter and the media, and the more sane you are, the more you're going to get attacked from left and right. (laughs) The last thing I would ever want to do is to run to be a congressperson or an MP. So it's the catch-22 of our modern era that uh, you'd have to be mad to enter politics. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're sane, you don't want to enter politics, but we actually need the sane people to enter politics. But the point I was going to make on Georgia, just to finish, is that when I was ambassador there, and even more now in the years that I've left, Georgia's been heading down the wrong track. But we've all kind of struggled with what's the right response. Should we really come out and criticize Georgia and risk Georgia, the current government saying, fine, we don't want all this Western boss in us. We're just going back to Russia. So we kind of pull our punches and let them get away with things that they shouldn't get away with. So I thought that was a great point from his interview. So now that we're all convinced that our world is going to hell, let's try and move in a slightly more positive direction. We'll be spending some time each week unpacking some ideas that could suggest a sliver of hope for humanity to move beyond the current chaos in our Ordering the Disorder segment. So Jason, what do you think is the main starting point for us to move beyond our current disorder? From my perspective, we need a collective will to put issues of global coordination above concerns of sovereignty or national interest. I don't think that there really is a way for America to go first or for British politicians to put Britain first or for Italian politicians to put Italy first. You can't have some nations winning while others are losing. And this is just flawed thinking. Collective action doesn't mean just coordinating the traditional powers, namely the US, UK, and Europe, especially on issues like cyberspace and tax havens. You can't address any of those issues without the whole world working together. We do need democracies to work better together. And we do need the sort of older traditional democracies, the ones largely in the G7, NATO, the EU, led by America to broaden our concept of who our natural allies are and reach out, for example, to democracies in the global south. Do you think the Americans can do that? Are they willing and capable of stepping up to be the world leader but also subordinating that within a wider community of democracies. Jason, what do you think? 
After the Iraq debacle, many questioned if the U.S. had the moral legitimacy or the technical policy tools to coordinate the international arena. And I understand that rationale. I totally do. From my interactions with the U.S. government, I would argue that American institutions circa 2023 are truly fundamentally broken. Interagency coordination is in shambles. Our State Department is not fit for purpose. Experts are rotated from one department to another. But since the Ukraine war, a train of thought has come back into vogue that the U.S. should assert global leadership. So what role can the U.S. have in ordering the world, given our actual capabilities, our actual reputational challenges, and then our profound domestic divisions? And then this issue of the willingness of the American electorate and leaders to actually lead. It's something that our guests over the rest of this podcast series will be debating, each from their own political vantage point. We'll close the show with some highlights. Corey Shackey is at the forefront of this debate in the D.C. think tank space. We see her as a never-Trumper Republican, a true internationalist who sat on the National Security Council during George W. Bush's first term, working to set up the NATO response force. She thinks a strong United States is essential to the future of the international order. There is no substitute for American leadership in the near or medium term. The ways that feisty Americans view the world and want to shape the world are, I think, unique and advantageous. They not only make us safe and prosperous, they make a whole lot of others safe and prosperous, even those countries and societies that bridle at the notion of American dominance or that seek to overthrow the liberal international order. I tend to agree with Corey. It's absolutely not the case that America leads perfectly, but somebody has to lead, and it's better that America does it than somebody like China or Russia, for example. But again, we come back to the question you pose, Jason. Are the Americans willing and capable of doing that role? And are they willing to subsume their national interests in the interests of building broader coalitions? Yeah. Can the U.S. become a hegemonic leader of a global coalition of allies once again, as we did after World War II? Or have we lost touch with the ability to do so? It's an idea we unpack with Charles Kupachan. He's a professor of international relations at Georgetown University and the former director for European affairs in the National Security Council during the Obama administration. You could conceive him as the center-left mirror image of Corey Shackey, someone who truly believes in spreading democracy, but is a little bit more skeptical about the U.S. role in the world. I don't think that there is a substitute for American leadership, but American leadership has to be in partnership with others. We need to realize that perhaps an even more pressing challenge is figuring out how to work with non-democracies, how to work across ideological dividing lines. Because let's face it, whether it's climate change or nuclear proliferation or pandemics, we're going to need to work with China. And as a consequence, the continuing erosion in the U.S.-Chinese relationship is worrying. So we need to rebuild our core partnerships and alliances. But we live in an interdependent and globalized world that is going to require reaching across ideological dividing lines and figuring out how 
to tackle global challenges. I think one of the other points that Charles makes really persuasively is that if we're going to get the world in order, we have to get our own domestic house in order as well. Does the United States reclaim its political center and its political equilibrium and get its head screwed back on? Or do we see polarization and political dysfunction deepen on both sides of the Atlantic? In which case, I fear that this grouping of liberal countries that has been so central to anchoring the international system for the last 80 plus years will not be able to uphold that task. So for me, first, second, third, fourth orders of business are right here at home. We build ourselves up from the inside out. We'll get it right. We don't. We're going to be in trouble. Well, as Charles said, the disorder we see is sadly here to stay. Unfortunately. And so over the next few weeks, we'll be examining intertwined challenges like the geopolitics of climate change, the struggle for global leadership, and much, much more. We'll hear from esteemed writers like Atlantic columnist Anne Applebaum, leading diplomats like former NATO spokesperson Jamie Shea, and political grandees like Tony Blair's former chief of staff, Jonathan Powell. These experts will help us continue to understand the type of disorder we're living through and what we can actually do practically, implementably to create order. So there's lots more to come and we hope you'll stay with us and join us through the next episodes. There are loads of ways to do so. First of all, of course, you can follow this show wherever you're listening right now. We're also on Twitter at Disorder Show. And if you want to read more about the show, you can do so by following the links in our show notes. Just as it takes a village to raise a child and the entire international system to coordinate to fix the enduring disorder, it takes a lot of people working together to make the Disorder podcast. First thanks go to our producer, George McDonough, then our executive producer at Goalhanger, Neil Fern, and to Jack Davenport, the head and our gaffer at Goalhanger, my former program manager, Zena Starbuck, and Guy Fiends. To all who've participated, you too have helped order the disorder. Next time on Disorder. Social media fundamentally does two things. It amplifies messages and it mobilizes people. But can we say that they changed the calculation of military commanders? Yeah, because I see it every day in Ukraine, not least because half the time they need to take the phones off the soldiers because they keep streaming from where they are. We're going to meet Disorder's own roving correspondent, David Patrikarikos. He's an international man of mystery who pops up equally in Baghdad, Bakhmut, and Brighton. He'll help us understand why the internet has emerged as an unregulated space and how it disorders rational policymaking. Until then, thanks for listening, and we hope you have an orderly week. Goodbye.